This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the sports ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on a paper in the philosophy of sport literature. We look at classic discipline-defining articles, exciting newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. In this episode of Examine Sport, I look at Pam Saylor's Mixed Competition and Mixed Messages. Saylor's takes up the question of sex segregation in sport, first by engaging with and then criticizing Jane English's 1978 Sex Equality in Sport article, a subject of a previous episode of Examine Sport. Saylor's then suggests how to deal with the complexity of sport and gender and how best to structure competitions. Now, Sailors examines at least eight weaknesses in English's argument. I'm only going to really focus on the first four criticisms because I think they're the most uh, important and really get at the main idea that, that Sailors is getting at in her criticism of English's argument. Now, first, Sailors argues that English is, quote, probably wrong that the self-respect of women in general would be damaged by women's sporting losses, close quote. This idea is crucial to English's argument for the proportionate distribution of the scarce benefits of sport. Uh, now, I remind you again, a uh, previous episode of Examine Sport goes more into more detail on English's argument, so I would suggest checking that out. But now, Sailor's criticism here is twofold. First, she appeals to Raymond Belliotti's argument that there doesn't seem to be, quote, any empirical connection between female athletic attainments and female self-respect, close quote. Women, he says, by and large, don't seem to care about female and male sport disparities. Now, Bellotti is writing in the 1970s, and things may have changed since then. So, Sailors takes a different tact. She follows uh, Claudio Tamburini's argument that providing proportionally equal uh, rewards in terms of the scarce benefits for unequal performances, quote, risks consolidating their own negative self-image, as well as general prejudices about the possibilities for women to perform at the top level, close quote. From this, Sailors concludes that whether women lose self-respect due to disparate outcomes in sport is really an open empirical question, and in any case, providing equal rewards would seem to be counterproductive, reinforcing rather than reducing the loss of self-respect. Now, Sailors next says that English's, quote, English's argument for segregating sport to enhance self-respect is probably wrong, close quote. Now, the reasoning is quite similar to the previous weakness. The argument for segregation here appears to rest on a premise that women are inferior, too weak to compete with men, right? And this, thus, uh, Sailors argues, is counterproductive. It rests its claim of enhancing self-respect on a premise of inferiority, and so is more likely to perpetuate and further entrench the belief that women are inferior. Now, one of English's main proposals for sex equality is that we ought to create new sports that are more ideally suited to female physiology, giving women a natural advantage in the sport over men. And Sailors raises several concerns about this proposal. First off, she says women just might prefer existing sports, both as spectators and participants. 
and sailors' concerns that we would violate individual autonomy if we require women to play these new sports instead of the established sports. And introducing new sports is always uh, a challenge. It's difficult to gain a footing in the crowded sports space, and it's difficult to be taken seriously when you're a new sport. Uh, and so would these new female-focused sports really be seen, quote, re as real sports, end quote, right? Now, lastly, Sailors returns to the argument that this seems to be counterproductive insofar as it would continue to reinforce and entrench the idea that women just cannot compete on an equal footing with men. Now, the last weakness I want to look at here is Sailors' concern that, quote, adopting a strict policy of, of sex segregation or mixed competition limits the choice of athletes. Now, here she argues that requiring mixed competition would decrease sporting opportunities for female athletes. Given the average physiological differences between men and women, removing the option of sex-segregated sport would seem to prevent women from more fully engaging and participating in sports, certainly at the most elite levels. At the same time, she notes, only allowing for sex-segregated sport would also limit the autonomy of female athletes. Those who are capable of competing in mixed competitions would not be allowed to do so. Now, Saylor's primary point is that mandating just one competitive structure is not sufficient to protect the autonomy and liberty of athletes. Right now, Saylor's uh, uh, raises further criticisms of uh, uh, and weaknesses of Jane English's argument, but these first four really point to the main criticism, the main thrust of the criticism that Saylor's is, is raising against uh, English's overall. Uh, take on, on this issue. The first is that the prescriptions here seem to be counterproductive. They're more likely to reinforce the bias against female athletes rather than improve their situations. And uh, second, that the argument fails to be really sufficiently nuanced. There just isn't going to be a single prescription that's going to handle this uh, issue neatly and satisfactorily. Right? There's going to have to be several different ways to approach this topic. So in light of that, Sailors presents four distinctions that she says can help navigate the complexity of the questions of segregated or mixed competition. The four distinctions are first, individual versus team sports, right? So that's pretty self-explanatory. We have individuals competing or we can have a team of individuals competing against each other. Uh, but sports can also be structured differently. Uh, one way in which sports can be structured is a direct competition. So think of basketball or football or soccer where the teams are opposing each other on the field or on the court, uh, or indirect competition where the competitions take place, uh, where, but it may be, you may be competing against uh, the clock in a kind of timed competition or uh, against the course in something like golf. And so you're not necessarily uh, in opposition with each other uh, within, within the field of, of the competition. And then uh, contact versus non-contact sport. So again, you know where where how much physical uh, uh, contact uh, is is involved in the sport and how much is uh, is it not a contact sport. And then the last is uh, amateur versus professional sport, or in some ways it may be also just thought of as kind of recreational sport versus elite or high level sports, regardless of of, of pay. Uh, now, sailors' point here is that quote. Our answers to what is the best policy is unlikely to apply in all 
these cases, close quote. Right? So these distinctions point to the need for evaluating whether mixed or segregated competition is appropriate without, sailors argues, falling victim to a simplistic one-size policy that might end up being counterproductive towards our goal of uh, sex and gender equality in sport. So, for example, Sailors discusses the idea that a professional, that at the professional or the elite level of competition, it might make sense to segregate sport by gender for various reasons, while, quote, allowing amateur athletes to compete together and gain better understanding of the differences between the sexes, which are not as great as have been supposed, close quote, right? Uh, right? So it, it may be that uh, at the amateur recreational level, we want to have mixed competition, while at the elite level, we still have segregated competition depending on uh, the circumstances. Uh, Sailors also notes that there might be greater opportunities for mixed competition on team sports as opposed to individual sports. In a team sport, integration might be more feasible because of the different roles on a team where the physiological differences between men and women might be put to an advantageous use, or at least not uh, uh, one that might, would be disadvantageous, right, in terms of the way that you might uh, uh, make use of different team members. Now, another value of employing these distinctions is that by opening up more avenues of mixed competition, it increases the opportunities to see women, quote, being able to compete athletically equally with men, right? So English and others worry that if we instituted complete mixed competition across the board, we would lose out on elite female athletic success and achievement. There just would be far fewer instances of female athletes serving as role models or achieving elite athletic status. Saylor's argument is that these distinctions both retain areas of sex-segregated sport where that is best for competitors, but also open up other sports for mixed competition where it is more most appropriate. And in doing so, Sailors argues, we create opportunities to have female athletes succeeding alongside men at the highest level of sport. So Sailors concludes that this more nuanced approach to structuring sport competition avoids the counterproductive pitfalls of complete mixed sports or totally sex-segregated sports while increasing the opportunities for female athletes to excel and compete at the highest levels. Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show at Apple Podcasts, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist at gmail.com.